0: I'm Amy Joe Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now Show. Go, 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 go. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Adam Grant is on the show today. He has become one of my favorite thought leaders and authors over the past couple of years He's a professor at Wharton, and he's not only been recognized as the youngest tenured but also highest-rated professor at the school. Uh, As an organizational psychologist, he brings a lot of science into the conversation, and I have really enjoyed his books. He has two books out. Give and Take was his first, and second was The Originals. He has another one coming out, co-written with Cheryl Sandberg. And in this discussion today, one of the things we cover— is this concept of of kind of legacy. And a lot of people think, and a lot of his students came to him during office hours and said, you know, first I need to build up enough X, Y, Z kind of to give back. I need to um, come in, build as much wealth as possible before I can start giving back. And he actually looks at it kind of in the opposite way. And we talk about how we don't really have to choose between being successful and being generous. You can do both at the same time. And he studied this. Um, Adam's point of view is just, it's like thought candy <laughs> to me. Anything he shares, publishes, his opt-eds in the New York Times, I'm all over it. I learn a ton from him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we hop into this episode, let me fill you in on a little secret of mine. That's Headspace. It's a guided meditation app, and I never imagined that doing something for 10 minutes a day could increase my quality of life so much. I've always struggled with knowing when to make things happen versus when to let things happen. Sometimes things go very well when I push on the gas, and sometimes not so much. It gets me into trouble. Headspace has helped me with learning how to trust my intuition And I've tried meditation off and on for years. It's never stuck, but this time it has. I've made a very intentional shift in my morning routine, and that's to wake up, have my coffee, do headspace, journal, and then I check my email, my social media, all of my devices. It's been a big shift, but great result. My aunt used to say, don't let anything rent space in your head for free. That's valuable real estate. Headspace allows me to be a much better landlord of my thoughts, especially first thing in the morning. You can go to headspace.com forward slash why not now for a free trial. And if you stick around to the end of the show, I'll tell you how you can get a month for free. So welcome to the show, Adam. I'm super excited to have you on today. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Amy Jo. The excitement's mutual. I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, given the last couple of books that you've written and the world that you work in, I think the "why not now" question is extremely uh, relevant and applicable to to what you do. But also, I think you could probably give us some more insight into the "why not now" question. And let's start off with yourself here. So, can you think of a time when you just had a decision to make and you thought to yourself, "Okay"? I'm doing it. Why not now? And talk us through that moment a little bit.
1: Definitely. That was uh, the moment that led me to write a book, actually.
0: Which one?
1: <laughs> uh, it was the first book, Give and, take. Give and Take. Okay. I was, let's see, I was a freshman in college originally, and I read a few books that totally changed the way I saw the world. Um, one was Bob Cialdini's book, Influence, where you know he'd been this person who was always uh, getting taken advantage of by others and wanted to learn how he could defend himself. And he just brought these fascinating experiments to the table and and showed that you could actually use the tools of science to understand persuasion. And I just I love that. And then um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, came out uh, shortly after I read that, and I found it riveting. And those two books uh, and a few others had a big influence on my career choice, so I ended up deciding I wanted to become an organizational psychologist because I, I just I gained so much insight from those books and the studies they covered, and I wanted to try to to share those kinds of ideas with other people. And then I you know I got really busy with research and teaching and kind of forgot about it. And then in two thousand and eleven, I got tenure and suddenly realized that I had no excuse not to be communicating with a broader broader audience, and that was the beginning of the Why Not Now moment.
0: And was there a moment where you thought, geez, i I have this platform it's kind of my my duty something specific happened in class or when you got your tenure what was that moment that that kind of was an aha okay I, I need to do this
1: well when when I found out I got tenure um, <laughs> it was it was like a, a now what moment of you know I, I've been focused for a few years on on that goal and now that I have it, what am I supposed to do with my time? And how do I decide what to work on? Uh, it was like all of a sudden all these boundaries went away. And it was liberating, but it was also a little bit terrifying. And right, like about a week after that, I got an email from uh, one of my favorite collaborators, Barry Schwartz, um you might know him from the paradox of choice mm-hmm. uh, and you know the funny thing is like he he's written about how we all experience this tyranny of freedom when when we're faced with too many options and here I was in the middle of it and Barry was offering me a way out he said i'm i'm thinking about writing my next book on motivation do you have any interest in in writing it together and i was incredibly excited about the opportunity and he's you know he's just a blast to work with i've learned a ton writing with him and I I was ready to do it. And I happened to have a a meeting uh, with my students in my research lab that week. And I mentioned it to them, and they all said, "No, you can't do this." And I was I was sort of taken aback. I'm like, "Well, actually, I can." <laughs> but that aside, like, I'm why, the teacher. why? Yeah, no, but I, I've I've always really valued the advice that my students give, and you know, the questions they ask, and the the feedback they provide, you know, always had a huge impact on the the work that I do. And so I was curious about why they were so you know like so consistent and so intense about it. And you know the message I heard over and over from each of them was, if you're going to write a book, you need to get your own work out there, mm-hmm. and you know you sh- you should write about your ideas as opposed to you know other people's. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that you know if if I was going to do it, it should be the ideas that I was most passionate about. And uh, then I I started thinking about what I would actually have to say and whether I would have the courage to say things like hey you know what like you do not have to succeed first and then start giving back you could do it the opposite way and the more I thought about that the more I thought okay I am going to put this out there at some point why not now
0: I love it and and hearing a little bit about kind of what drew you to this point, especially knowing how young you are and getting tenure and having these accomplishments. Kind of, Do you think that helped in terms of imposter syndrome? Because you were able to accomplish these milestones, so many people really kind of suffer from, well, what do I know? Why, why should I do this X, Y, Z? Um, do you think the external kind of labels and or reaching certain goals help us in our own minds with imposter syndrome? Or was this a little different for you?
1: I I found this different. I think that you know, in some ways, I felt like more of an imposter because, (laughs) like, I had spent a few years working with leaders twice my age, and you know, I remember one one experience in particular when I was teaching a group of um, Air Force wing commanders. They're one step below general, and most of them are in their early fifties, and you know, they kind of started out by asking, like, what can I possibly learn from, you know, a professor who's 12 years old? That, you know, that, that makes, made things more challenging. But on the flip side, I saw a lot of people speaking about leadership and writing books who had experience but no evidence. And, you know, like you, <laughs> just because you follow the laws of gravity, doesn't mean you're a physicist. Um, just because you drive a car doesn't make you an engineer. And you know i think there's a big difference between having lived something and actually generated systematic knowledge about it and you know a lot of times you know i was asking like what would work for most of the people most of the time in a situation like this and then looking at randomized controlled experiments or longitudinal studies you know of, of people in in different kinds of jobs and you know, the more data I gathered, the more confident I, be, I became that we needed to move beyond just intuition and experience, and really bring evidence to the table, so that people could better leverage their experience. And I think that that made me much more confident in, in going forward, saying, "Look, you know, this isn't me making this up based on my limited experience. This is me, you know, bringing the best possible data to the table to answer a question that we've all grappled with."
0: And that science aspect is, especially hearing this from you, it's. It's very inspiring, I think, because not only um, do you bring that science to the table, but I've heard you talk a little bit about uh, your philosophy on on people waiting to have a job, build up enough money or time or whatever, and then give back and um, have their legacy. And I can't remember who you were being interviewed by, but I think it was Daniel Pink. There was something about along the lines of well why wait to give back, right? Why can't we be doing this? You don't have to accomplish something until it's time to then say, okay, now I'm really going to live and really going to have. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: I can. <laughs> Good. Yes, I think I can.
0: <laughs> and I may be getting a little mixed up here, but I just, it resonated with me in terms of a lot about time. And I think about why not now. And, and there was some sort of element in alignment with time there.
1: Yeah, I, I think, so, you know, I, where it really started was I had a lot of students coming into office hours and saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my career, and, you know, my goal is to try to build up as much wealth as possible so I can start giving back. And, okay, you know, there are people like Bill Gates who have done an amazing job with that. But I was struck that most of the successful people that I knew um, who were the ones that I, you know, not only new but admired. They, they had really thought about it the opposite way. They said, you know, look, you know, philanthropy is not the only way to give. And I want to be you know giving more than I take and contributing from day one. And so they looked they looked for ways to start helping, you know even before they had accumulated a lot of status and expertise. Um, is there a bit of knowledge I can share? Can I give people feedback? Can I make introductions? Um, you know, can I um, can I even do some reverse mentoring and you know help people who are more senior than me? You know, learn from my point of view, and that focus turned out to be a really powerful way to build relationships and social capital. Um, it also, you know, it's it's actually a really meaningful way to learn because when you're solving other people's problems, you pick up knowledge and skills that you can apply to your own problems. And it's also just, it's, it's an incredibly motivating way to live your life to say, look, what I do doesn't just matter for me. It has significance to the, to a lot of other people too. And so, you know, there's this sort of social capital, there's this knowledge gain, there's, there's motivation that comes from helping. And of course the irony is if you do it just to succeed, it doesn't work. (laughs) But knowing that it's not always self-sacrificing to care about others uh, I, I thought was was pretty exciting. And to say, look, I don't have to choose between being successful and being generous. You can try to do both at the same time. Um, I found myself wishing more people would think that way. And uh, lo and behold, I started studying it.
0: <laughs> that kind of brings me to my next question. You know, The why not now isn't always about starting something or jumping into something. But in your case, as a uh, springboard diver, there was a point when you decided to stop. Um, can you t- tell, share a little bit of, of the reasoning behind that? I found it so scientific and logical, and it was just really fascinating.
1: Well, <laughs> basically, what happened was uh, the the quick story is uh, when I got to high school, um, I went to like diving practice tryouts. I, had, you know, over the summer I'd been playing too many video games, apparently, and my mom dragged me to a local pool and said, "You're getting some sun." And luckily one of the lifeguards there was, uh, was an all-state diver and on one of his breaks he was practicing. And I was just mesmerized and said, I want to learn how to do that. So I spent part of the summer trying to learn some diving and then you know, when it came time for the season to start, I showed up at the first practice for a tryout, And I finished the practice and uh, I had this amazing coach, Eric Best, who said, do you want the good news or the bad news? I was like, definitely the bad news. And he said, well, you know the bad news is that diving requires three things explosive power, flexibility and grace. And it, and he said, my grandmother can jump higher than you. Uh, you can't touch your toes without bending your knees and you move like Frankenstein.
0: <laughs> What's the good
1: news? <laughs> is is there good news? Because I I think it's kind of over. And he said, first of all, I would never cut anyone who wants to be here. Like I am I am as committed as you are. And secondly, diving's a nerd sport. It attracts all the people who are too slow for track and too short for basketball and too weak for football. And if you work really hard at this, you could actually become halfway decent. And you know that, that just lit a fire under me. And I said, I, w- I want to learn how to do this as well as I can. And you know, I ended up training pretty obsessively for the next four years and um, was, was stunned to qualify for the Junior Olympics twice and make an All-American list. And then I got recruited to dive in college. And I had achieved way more than I ever thought I would And as I was practicing, um, you know, as a, as an NCAA athlete, I realized that not only were the people I was training with and competing against uh, more talented than me, but now they worked as hard as I did too. And I felt like I had sort of reached the ceiling of what I could achieve. And I also felt like, you know, my diving wasn't benefiting anybody else. Um, You know, I'd like passed the point at which like, okay, (laughs) like my parents were proud of me because I became halfway good at something, but yeah you know, that was kind of like I, I'd finished that. and I felt like from there, the best thing I could do was I could help other people with what I'd learned, and I found much more joy in coaching um, than I did in in actually competing. And then you know I started focusing my attention on other ways that I could contribute.
0: Oh, I love it. I think that's so cool that you were able to process the decision that way and kind of think, okay, well, you know, my competition and the other talent, they're beating me or they may be more skillful, but I can't outwork them anymore. <laughs> you know, I think that's thats basically how I got through college was just trying to be the hardest worker because I was never the smartest. So those moments come though, where there's a point of probably diminishing returns and it's smart to shift focus and energy into another area. Uh, so I have to tell you Adam I'm a bit of a rookie researcher and I'm trying to dabble into this world a little bit more having just gone through a pretty big transition in my career I just did a very simple kind of preliminary study with a um, a gentleman his name is Dr. Eve Kane and we we're looking at kind of the impact of online behavior and how it it really impacts people's behavior in the real world. And I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, but first, kind of knowing that I have this bit of a obsession on kind of serotonin and uh, social media. And it's this big question mark in my mind um, because I, I come from kind of the world of social media and used to have a company that worked with a lot of different individuals and brands to help them grow their presence. And what I've noticed Having been in this world of Twitter and Facebook for quite a long time, um, there's a lot more negativity. And after one day of just being really kind of fed up, I think it was after one of the presidential debates, and seeing you know this feed through um, of negativity and anger through my Facebook, I thought, "I'm that's it. Am I really going to give this up?" Um, but I didn't, and I thought, "Well, what could what could change this?" And I happened to be listening to some podcast um, about serotonin. And I thought, well, given the science of serotonin, you know, you do something nice for me, you get a hit of feeling good. And I'm simplifying this, um, but so do I as a recipient, recipient, right? So, what I thought was interesting, though, is that then people who witness those kind of acts of kindness also feel better, feel good. Uh, so, what if we took this online? Because there are infinite number of people who could potentially witness. This this type of interaction, could we scale or spread that feeling if we use technology and especially social media? And um, it became kind of this thing I was thinking about. And I guess I throw that question back to you, knowing and given you are an expert when it comes to research and, uh, you know, as an organizational psychologist, how do we potentially do that or can we accelerate the process of? Give and take, um, and and mostly give online, and, and kind of accelerate acts of kindness.
1: Ooh, I think it's a really it's a really important question, and it's it's not one that gets asked enough. So you know, one thing I would like to see is it would be great if it were harder for people to disguise their identities online. Mm-hmm. It's it's like particularly on Twitter, it's so easy to create. Uh, you know, a new account that doesn't actually trace back to who you are for the most part, and you know, people are much nastier when they're invisible um, than they are when they they realize they're going to be held accountable for their behavior. And so, I would you know, I would love to make online interactions a little bit more like face to face interactions. And you you know, particularly with um, with all the the issues that are occurring right now in America around race, um, there's a, a this incredible meta analysis that Pedigree and Tropp did a decade ago where they looked at um, every study that had ever tried to connect people uh, who are uh, members of different groups. And this is over 700 studies. They found that in 94% of the cases, simply having like brief contact or short interaction with somebody who is an outgroup member reduced prejudice. And you know i think that that often happens face to face because you have to look at the person as a human being mm-hmm. and you can imagine you know they gosh they have thoughts and feelings and goals and dreams just like the rest of us do even if they come from a different background and it's, it's so easy to lose sight of that on the, like on social media, right? What's the, what's the old New Yorker cartoon on the internet? No one knows you're a dog.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, there are so many. And the psychology of a troll, well, I've just been seeing what's out there online about this. So there are some pretty interesting videos, but you hit the first one right on the head of, of the true kind of psychology is that ability to hide your true identity and, um, uh, they call it, what do they call it? the online the yeah
1: the disinhibition effect, effect of, exactly. of anonymity yeah. yeah
0: so that's one thing and um, do you believe that you know negativity spreads just as fast as positivity online
1: well i mean there's there's a ton of research on this that you know generally shows that bad tends to be stronger than good uh, so you know like if you look at Roy Baumeister's work or Paul Rosin's, um, they both reviewed a lot of evidence that we tend to be about three times more attentive to you know, negative information than positive. And, you know, they think there's like a there's an evolutionary reason for that, that, you know, like if if you saw a tiger in the jungle and you didn't immediately run, like you probably didn't pass on your genes Whereas, like, if you missed out on an opportunity to sing "Happy Birthday," your life was not threatened, mm. <laughs> and, and so, like, you know, they think we've evolved for, for survival reasons to you know to overweigh the negative relative to the positive, positive. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, John Gottman's research in marriages, showing that on average, marriages tended to be most sustainable if you know people had five times as many positive interactions as negative, uh, because the the bad does tend to weigh more heavily in many situations than the good. But it doesn't have to be that way, and I think one of the the most exciting features of social media is much of what goes viral is inspiring or funny. I think that we could do a much better job um, trying to share that material, um, and. Like not following the path that the news media has, which is assuming you know the more the more extreme a rare negative event is, the more coverage it deserves.
0: And in give and take, you talk a little about non-complementary behavior. Do you think that could be one way to maybe bring down the intensity of online trolls? Could you explain exactly what that means? I guess not everyone. I didn't really know what non-complementary behavior was, but it it makes. Uh, sense in a, a certain
1: way. Well, yeah. So, like, when I think about this, Amy Joe, my my instinct is to say, you know, when I when I think about people's approaches to interactions, right? I've, I I just I think it's so interesting that across cultures and you know, in lots of different industries, if you look at this professionally. There are these three styles of interaction that tend to define most people's approaches. Um, So the givers and takers are on the extreme, right? Givers are people who tend to approach most of their interactions asking, what can I do for you? And takers are the opposite. It's all about what you can do for me. And what's interesting is that most of us don't default to either extreme. Instead, we live in the middle as matchers. Um, And matching is all about saying, look, I'll do this for you. If you can do that for me, it's quid pro quo, you know, trading favors evenly. And it it seems like a a safe way to be fair so that, you know, you're not too generous and you're not too selfish. So what's what's interesting is, you know, a lot of like a lot of bad behavior on social media is taking behavior, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's people trying to undermine others, steal credit for their ideas, um, you know, insult, offend. Trash. You can like, we, may, we can make a long list of like how to be a taker on the internet, uh, troll edition. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, oh goodness! <laughs> don't give everyone some ideas there.
1: I, I'm actually I'm a little afraid of what, what would be in that list. But what's interesting is if you build a whole community of givers, it's actually more vulnerable to taking behavior because people tend to be too trusting, and it's having a subset of matchers in the community to play the karma police. A kind of role that that really maintains a good norm of generosity, so that you know the great thing about matchers is they believe in an eye for an eye, a just world, what goes around comes around, and when it doesn't, they know it's it's their turn basically to step in. And so, if you're a true matcher, when you made it a, a taker, you just it's, you feel like it's your mission in life to punish the heck out of that person, and that way justice is served. And the way that most matchers do that is through gossip. Um, you know, warning people about takers and trolls. And, you know, I used to think that gossip was an entirely bad thing, but there's actually, social scientists call it pro-social gossip. Um, you know, it's the it's the warning somebody, hey, watch out for this person, and making sure that their reputation is visible so that other people don't get exploited or hurt by them. Um, and that actually helps to preserve um, you know, kindness and generosity in, in communities. And I would think that in every community, this is like, um, you know, kind of the watchdog role. Uh, but online, it would be great to have, you know, a subset of matchers whose job it is to troll the trolls.
0: Which kind of is happening. I, I've, I had this friend who um, was just hopping on the train and, and headed somewhere from New York, and he said to his Facebook friends, hey, I have a few extra minutes. Does anyone need anything? Can I help anyone? And I was so inspired That I decided to do the same, but I did it on Twitter. And there was quite a difference between Facebook and Twitter that I noticed. Um, And then I took it to Facebook. And that give and take on Facebook was fascinating because one of the things that a friend posted was, hey, Facebook friends, and this is just to his direct friends, I'd like you to do three things. Number one, like this post so the algorithm will keep it up in the feed. (laughs) Number two... um, share something in the comment section that you need help with. And number three, scroll through the comments and see if there's someone else that you can help. And what was cool was it was kind of, it turned out to where uh, the currency was giving almost. like People didn't feel that they could ask for anything until they kind of went through the comments and looked to see if there was someone else they could help. And that was really interesting feedback, but also the amount of interaction and volume of questions and answers was mind-blowing. And it just seems intuitive and logical that if more people could do this, um, it's one way to use technology to accelerate kind of a more positive environment what are your what are your thoughts on that type of a an experiment or is there anything that that you can think of that could be negative to that
1: it's it's such a cool idea you know i think that we've we've all been in a situation where we underestimate how willing others are to help if only they knew you know who could contribute and how or who could benefit and how and you know i think that actually there's there's when you look at research on, on helping at work, for example, you see that 75 to 90% of all acts of helping and giving start with a request. So there aren't a lot of people who are like, I'm kind of bored this week. How could I enrich your life? <laughs> but most of it actually is reactive. Somebody makes a request and then other people step in. And so one of the biggest barriers to creating a norm of generosity is actually just getting people to ask and make their needs transparent uh, so that you know, other people know where to direct their energy. And I think this is this could be a great way to do it. Um, you know, one of the big challenges is oftentimes uh, I've seen a lot of startups try to create forums like this and fail because everyone is asking and no one's giving. And you know, giving requires usually either high empathy or high trust. And so you have to find a way to either personalize, you know, the, and humanize the people who are asking, or build a real relationship between the people who are potentially asking and giving in order to get the dynamics to sustain themselves. Uh, but there's a there's a great organization called Humax, uh, which is uh, which has built an exercise called the Reciprocity Ring that does exactly this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're in the process of creating a, an app to facilitate the give and take process. And I, th- I think the key is to define a community and help people understand each other's needs.
0: That's so cool. I think it, it, your point about empathy and trust is um, I saw that right away on Facebook. Is that you know the people that I knew more directly. Uh, we're much more willing to to ask, but also help. Uh, I think on Twitter it would be where people just naturally don't know you as well as personally. that's just part of the environment. Um, there was a little bit of well, what does she want over there? What's the, What's the catch? You know, Why, why would someone want to tweet something like that? That's very odd um, to just want to help. So that's good to know about the reciprocity ring and um, Hugh Max. Is that HUMAX? You got it. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. Kind of switching gears for a moment. You study well as an organizational psychologist and you're constantly looking at kind of the minds and the behavior of people. How do you keep your mind healthy?
1: Well, you know, I think there are are lots of ways to do that. For me, I think it comes down to a few things. Um, One is making sure that I have at least one meaningful conversation every week with somebody I haven't talked to in a while, uh, which holds up a really really interesting mirror. Um, you know I think the the changes that you go through and that other people go through when you fall out of touch um, often open up much bigger opportunities to learn than when you reconnect um, than you do from the people you talk to every day. Um, a second thing is I you know, I always have time built into my schedule for reading, reflection, uh, for exercise, and you know, I find that that's when some of my, my best ideas come, uh, when you know, I'm not focused on doing something else. And uh, those are probably my favorite habits.
0: And do you um, intentionally kind of put it on your to-do list to have that meaningful conversation? So let's say it's Saturday and you haven't had one yet. Will you reach out or is it kind of just become a habit over the years?
1: Um, It's become a habit. It's one of those things where I find myself, you know, like sometimes it actually becomes an item in my calendar because I want to make sure that I don't forget to do it and that I make time for it. Uh, It's never shown up on a to-do list, but often it's like a repeating task reminder.
0: And I think that that's cool because there's accountability and and you're being so intentional about it. It's not just, I hope it happens. It's, no, this will happen. Um, And Something that I've been thinking about for quite a while, and this was after reading Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, um, and his kind of methodology. When it comes to gender equality in the workplace, do you think that a similar study in terms of kind of taking a look at women? who have accelerated that um, kind of process of breaking through and, and have statistically been able to defy the norms or the average, if we were to study those women across the board and, and not just high-power executives but all types of, of females in business, do you think we could arrive at characteristics that that they share and then implement it back into curriculum, kind of reverse engineer? Or is that a silly, silly method? I've just been thinking about this for a long time and maybe it's been done. Um, But given your world and your expertise, you're the guru. How, is that even a valid angle to think about it?
1: Uh, I hope I am never a guru, but.
0: (laughs) today you are, why not now?
1: (laughs) That aside, um, so how would you see that playing out? I'm curious to hear more.
0: So if we, um, I guess it would probably be qualitative and, and it would have to be quantitative, but, um, I just think about, I've met some pretty amazing women who, um, are constantly being asked, well, how did you do it? Kind of, how did you accelerate and, and accomplish what you did? And they kind of look around oftentimes and say, how did I do what? You know, I've never thought of myself as any different, but clearly there is a, a divide when it comes to that, um gap of equality, whether it's pay or it's uh, power. And if we did study all, you know, different women and, and say, okay, you know what, we've found that um, one characteristic is that they crave feedback and they really thrive on getting constructive criticism. And another characteristic is XYZ. Do you think it would be beneficial and effective to then take some of those characteristics and put it back into curriculum in schools or in our society in any way.
1: I am very torn on that one. I think on the one hand, a lot of people are unaware of of these kinds of group differences and it can be helpful for them to learn about them to both understand themselves and others. On the other hand, I worry a little bit that you know, like the the moment we start to talk about like differences between men and women, for example, we start to essentialize them. The reality is, like the, the distributions overlap. So you could say, aha, you know, like women are more conscientious than men on average, and girls are especially more conscientious than boys. They tend to be more self-disciplined, more organized, um, you know, more likely to to follow through on their plans and yet like you can find you know if you look at like a particular individual in the population like the opposite could be true when you compare two of them and you know the for the most part when you look at gender differences they tend to be driven by social roles and expectations rather than fundamental biological differences and so i worry a lot about you know teaching people you know okay you know this group is this way and therefore we should deal with them differently mm-hmm. as opposed to saying look Um, We want to give everybody equal opportunities, you know, to to learn and uh, succeed. So I don't know where I come down on that one overall. So
0: if an organization comes to you and says, hey, we really want to um, focus more on gender equality within our organization, are there certain areas that you navigate or that you kind of drift toward in terms of ways
1: to accomplish that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you start with bias. Right.
0: Unconscious, like gender bias.
1: Or- yeah, I think it's it's probably better referred to as subconscious. Um, but yeah, I, I think that yeah, you know, the the biggest barrier to gender equality is um, both men and women actually judging women differently than they do men for the same exact behaviors. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, I Cheryl Sandberg and I have written about this evidence that that I and many others have gathered, showing that when um, when men speak up with su- a, su- a suggestion, they usually get a pat on the back, whereas when women speak up, they're either barely heard or they're judged as too aggressive, even if it's the same idea communicated in the exact same way. And you know, the same is true with helping in a, in a different sense, where um, a woman has to spend a lot of time helping other people to get the perfor- same performance reviews on average as a man who does no helping. And, you know, when, when a man helps, people say, oh my gosh, I never would have expected that in a million years. He's so generous. Now I have to shower him with praise and rewards. Whereas when a woman helps, it's like she's communal. She wants to help. So it just gets taken for granted. And that is wildly unfair, right? The, the women have to do more of the heavy lifting but get less of the credit for it. And I think the, the more we can raise awareness about these biases, the more we can counteract them. Uh, by you know, actually tracking how much of these behaviors people do by allocating them evenly, you know, between the genders, uh, and I think that that could be a step in the right direction.
0: Gotcha. No, I love that. I think. That... The um, background that, that I have is more in professional sports, not not playing, <laughs> but working in uh, like the NBA and and have just been through some, some interesting dynamics where we see a more men usually in that specific field. And a lot of people have asked, you know, who are your mentors? And I, most of them are men. And I wonder if more men were mentors, would we see... An impact as well. Mentoring women, meaning,
1: yeah, I think that that would help. I mean, there, there's a gender disparity there too, right? So, when you survey female executives, um, they are more than twice as likely um, to devote time to mentoring women as male executives are. You know, and, and some of that is is feeling high responsibility and you know knowing that you know, there are lots of glass ceilings um, and sticky floors and mm-hmm. bottlenecks in the middle that women need unique support. To break through, um, and part of that is there are a lot of men who are very uncomfortable uh, with the kinds of positions that they have to put themselves in in order to mentor women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was with a um, a British executive uh, while back who said, you know, I, um, one of the the reasons that I've mentored so many women is nobody, you know, blinks in you know in most parts of Western Europe if I go on a business trip with a female junior employee. Um, in the us, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people immediately raise their eyebrows and start to wonder what's going on. And you know, I think that, yes, it would be fantastic to see more men mentoring women. I think it's, you know, it's there there are lots of barriers that get in the way, and I would be delighted to see uh, us get creative about how to overcome those barriers so that, uh, men do their share
0: yeah well and even awareness to your point before and cheryl sandberg's book lean in she does talk about that and it's um um you know having more people just be aware that that is a thing and that it can be okay to accept um you know what may be perceived as as something else but it's just kind of discussing it um Switching gears for one moment to to the originals. So you talk about Vujade, which I thought was so interesting, and and I believe that one of the examples was Uber, of how kind of a fresh set of eyes on an existing idea can be an original idea. What can people do to encourage more or welcome more Vujade experiences?
1: Well, you know, I, I always think about Vujade is you know just looking at. Uh, something we've seen many times before with fresh eyes. You know, it's like uh, when you're waiting in line looking, uh, excuse me, you're waiting in line for a taxi. And you know, I've done that lots of times before, but suddenly you see all these cars passing by and you wonder, why can't I have a ride in one of those? And then Uber is born. Mm-hmm. That's a Voujadé moment. And I think the easiest way to get to Vujade um, is to step outside of your frame of reference. So you know, professionally, that may mean you know going and like trying out a slightly different role, or you know learning a different function, uh, which often teaches you a different language, uh, for you know for speaking and communicating. It may mean you know rotating to a different culture, um, or you know trying to diversify your experience so that you're looking at things as if you're new to them again. And I think most of us, you know, like we, we consider it a sign of forward progress when we land in our comfort zone. It's like, aha, finally know what I'm doing. And that is the exact moment when you're at risk for putting on blinders and no longer seeing things you know, fresh. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's, it's always hard to know exactly where someone should diversify. But at the end of the day, uh, one of my favorite scholars, Carl Weick, says that creativity is just putting old things in new combinations and new things in old combinations and, you know, like the more the more things and combinations you give yourself access to, the better your chances of vuja day moments.
0: That's a, that's great. Uh, it makes sense why I like to travel, I think, so much is <laughs> because it kind of puts me in, uh, hopefully my mind is going to think a little differently, kind of with different ideas. Um, very cool. So getting to kind of the, the other side of why not now, the future, is there anything you are thinking about or haven't thinking about that you've maybe been wanting to jump into but you haven't yet and it's time to ask yourself why not now
1: yeah so i have been interested since i was in college in uh, in learning improv comedy
0: oh very cool
1: and i've never tried it
0: and something that you are really starting to think about more seriously now is this uh um an invite to come and watch you do some stand-up
1: no, no, definitely not. Um, not yet, anyway. Not yet. I, you know, I think I, I love humor, and, you know, in, in speaking and writing and teaching, you know, I've always tried to, you know, make it as lighthearted as possible. I think, you know, people are more engaged when they're having fun and they remember information better as well. And, uh, you know, I've just always loved comedy, too, you know, as an audience member. And I've realized that a lot of what I do, particularly in teaching, is like relies on, you know, some improv. You know, principles, uh, but I've never studied them carefully. I've never practiced them outside of the classroom. And I just think it would be a really fun thing to get more exposure to. So I'd like to give it a try, but have not gotten my act together to make time for it.
0: Gotcha. And that was my next question is, why do you think um, you haven't done this yet? Is it truly time or is there anything else surfacing that that might be getting in the way?
1: Uh, I think it's it's mostly time plus like I I basically devote almost every waking hour that I have to my family and then to, you know, my work and my students. And so it like I feel I would feel guilty taking it away from them, you know, to do something that was just fun.
0: That would be the ultimate edutainment. I mean, I can imagine, first of all, you're so highly regarded as a professor and you already have this charisma and ability to connect with students but then you add, you're already, I'm sure, adding some level of comedy, but then if you connect the two, um, edutainment <laughs> is what comes to mind, you're educating and entertaining at the same time. Um, how productive would that be? But but also, actually, to stand up, maybe you can um, practice at the dinner table or with your family. You can practice on them.
1: Oh, that's a cool idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, because then you get to still spend time with them and um, laugh and they can give you feedback, throw tomatoes or not, right?
1: I'm gonna try this. I yeah. think that actually could work.
0: What would be the very first step?
1: Well, I have to. I guess I have to teach our kids what improv is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean,
0: for you to learn improving. Yeah. The, so not only are you, you have to teach yourself, but you have to teach your family now. Um,
1: you know, actually, I read. Um, I read a book by uh, by the, the, some of the leaders at Second City. Uh, a little while ago uh, called Yes And, which was really good and went through a bunch of improv exercises for people to try out at work. And until this moment, I never thought of actually trying them at our dinner table.
0: There you go. Or
1: Maybe. maybe after dinner would be a better bet.
0: You could start a carnival, a traveling circus. Maybe everyone will turn into an improv uh, kind of uh, entertainer, and there you have it. <laughs> Little did
1: you that know. is a scary thought.
0: <laughs> no, but how cool would that be? Um, very cool. That's that's inspiring, and what a neat way to kind of ma- blend purpose, passion, and skill. Uh, because laughing and comedy is is such a great way to resonate with people. So. So cool.
1: Why not tonight?
0: Um, why not tonight? There you go. You've got your weekend mapped out for you, Adam. We get to <laughs> try improv on your family. Um, and just a few last three questions in there, just super quick. Um, but given you're an author, you do a lot of reading. What are you reading right now? And what is your all time favorite book?
1: Ooh, uh, this is such a. Such a hard question. Uh, the The reading right now is uh, is obviously less difficult. Um, so most of my reading these days is actually books that are uh, coming out that I've been asked to write, you know, like for. blurbs or endorsements for. And it, it it feels, it's like, okay, I could just read something because I was interested in it. Or I could read something that I'm really interested in. And maybe I could say something that would help someone else too. Nice. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, I, uh, there are a couple of books I've just, uh, been finishing up that I, I thought were outstanding. Um, one is, uh, Abby Wambach's book forward about her experiences, like the, the all-time leading goal scorer in soccer, um, and also about her life. And, uh, it was really moving and, uh, and eye-opening. Um, another one that I thought was really super was, uh, messy by Tim Harford, who looks at how disorder and clutter can actually uh, improve our our effectiveness and creativity, uh, and I I really I walked away from that thinking you know what like I believe in the life changing magic of messing things up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful mess. That's cool. Okay.
1: Yeah. That, so those are down. Th- those are two. And then all time <laughs> favorite book. That, I mean, there's so many that have influenced me in different ways. I think in some ways, reading as a kid. Uh, was was more influential than now because, like, there are books that really fundamentally affected my worldview, as it was you know early developing. And you know, I I loved Tuesdays with Maury, got me thinking about becoming a professor. And uh, I, I I also thought Ender's Game was just one of the most interesting books I've ever read, and could not put it down. So those are a couple of favorites, but there are many, many more.
0: No, those are great. And you mentioned how impactful I think, Outliers was on you just with your first Why Not Now, right, to get started.
1: Yeah, um, Malcolm Malcolm's writing has definitely been one of the, the defining forces in getting me to think about what it means to share ideas and especially social science with real people.
0: Awesome. <laughs> what keeps you up at night, Adam?
1: Oh, uh, feeling like I haven't contributed enough to other people and... Uh, wondering if there are better ways to use my time.
0: And last final question, what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: Uh, I would probably say, uh, this is actually some advice that I got uh, as I was graduating college from uh, my mentor, Brian Little. Uh, I, Brian said, look, there, I don't have any objections to being a really goal-oriented person. And you know, it's, it's great for achievement, but make sure you improve the acuity of your peripheral vision, because you know a lot of the most important and meaningful things in life can't be planned. And I think that I've gotten better at that over time. I think I was, my younger self was even worse at it than I am now. I guess is a different way to say it. And, you know, I think there were, have there were, been many times in my life where I had tunnel vision, and I got so obsessed with the thing that I was excited about at the moment. That I really lost sight of other priorities and opportunities, and so I would say, you know, just widen that field of vision a little bit, uh, so that you know, unexpected twists and turns don't get missed or ignored.
0: Great, great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your wisdom and thought processes. I can't thank you enough.
1: Well, thank thank you for having me and for being a rare positive force on social media.
0: <laughs> you bet. You bet. Adam has a brand new TED Talk out and, like I said, has a book coming out in April. He co-wrote with Sheryl Sandberg. It's called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. And so check that out. Uh, You can follow him at Adam M. Grant. And make sure you don't miss his articles, books, talks, you name it. He's one of my favorite follows when it comes to learning and just being aware of other things that are going on in the world. Several why not nows that I've seen uh, just sent in over social media and email have to do with um, kind of our relationship with technology. You know, why not now be more present? and, um, and, And I think that that last statement by Adam, you know, improving the acuity of your peripheral vision is right in line with that. Uh, one of the things that I decided to do at the beginning of the new year was to not check any devices before I get out of bed, have coffee, meditate and journal. And I'm on a couple weeks in now, and it's it's actually a much more difficult thing to do than I thought because I was so trained to just grab for that phone right away when I wake up and check email, check social media. And what I've found is that I am able to frame up my day a little bit more, just a little better for myself if I don't do that, if I frame it myself and then hop into those things. Otherwise, there could be an email I see or something on social media or who knows what that um, kind of starts to really dictate my morning or my mood or my day. And so before I let it frame me, I'm getting a jump on that, and it's, it's really been a pretty positive experience. I will keep it going, It's definitely um, uh, takes some practice, because I have been known to you know, wake up in the middle of the night, like I'm sure many of you have, um, and check my phone. So, no fly zone, digital devices in bed, that's one of my why not nows. It's little, but it's meaningful. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the newsletter that I have. You can do it at amyjomartin.com. Just sign up, put your email in. That's where a lot of the things that I'm doing and, and things that I can't even include, don't have time to include in the show, are shared. And it's a great way to stay in touch. So please sync up there and I'll talk to you next week. I want to hear what your Why Not Now is. Please share it with me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Amy Jo Martin. I'll send a signed copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Renegades Write the Rules, to the first 200 people who listen, rate, and leave an honest review of the podcast in iTunes. And you'll also get a free month subscription from our friends at Headspace. This is only available to Why Not Now listeners. Once you've left a rating and review on iTunes, just email your iTunes handle name and your mailing address to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com, and we'll get your package in the mail to you. For detailed show notes, head to amyjomartin.com forward slash whynotnow. That's where you'll find links to things we discussed on the show, special offers, and how you can keep in touch with guests. Hat tip to my buddies Ash and Devin at Rock Salt Music for our tunes today. You just listened to the talented John Coggins in Let's Go and Let It Ride. And a jump high five to my talented husband, Richard Gruer, for producing the show and being patient with me. See you next time. Until then, why not now?